Good afternoon. I'm Paul Durienzo with the news. The United Nations held a moment of silence today in memory of the workers from UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or Palestine, killed in Gaza over the past month. Geneva Secretary General of the UN, Tatiana Velovaya. Over the last month, 101 of our colleagues have lost their lives in Gaza. This is the highest number of aid workers killed in the history of our organization in such a short time. Staff at the UN offices in Geneva bowed their heads as a candle was lit. Meanwhile, more than 30 Palestinians were killed and a dozen buildings destroyed by an Israeli strike on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Israeli forces moved closer to El Quds Hospital and surrounded the El Sifra Hospital. Electricity was cut to most of the facilities as fuel ran out, stranding babies in incubators. An Israeli government internet post later removed said ambulances and hospitals would be legitimate targets. A ray of hope for a possible ceasefire in a phone call Sunday between President Joe Biden and the Emir of Qatar, President Biden. It is my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. Biden added a temporary ceasefire would be an opportunity to free some of the more than 240 hostages held by Hamas. There is an effort to uh, uh, take this pause to deal with the release of prisoners. And that's being negotiated as well with the Qataris that are engaged. And uh, so I remain somewhat hopeful that the hospital must be protected. White House National Security Spokesperson Jake Sullivan gave more details of the talks being brokered by Qatar. Qatar has been talking to Hamas. Israel has been talking to Qatar. The United States has been talking to both Israel and Qatar in an effort uh, to try to move forward these negotiations to a point where hostages can be released and reunited with their families. The president has no higher priority, which is why he is personally engaged on this issue. The news comes after French President Emmanuel Macron became the first G7 leader to endorse a ceasefire in Israel's war in Gaza. The war has been expanding beyond the front in Gaza, where Israeli troops are moving into a city honeycombed with tunnels and fighting is expected to be bloody. Meanwhile, in recent days, attacks on United States service members have increased in Syria and Iraq with numerous injuries. The United States responded today with a missile attack on a purported Iranian base in Syria, the third U.S. attack in two weeks. The Pentagon has stationed two aircraft carrier units and a cruise missile armed submarine to the region. Violence is growing along the border between Lebanon and Israel, with attacks by Hezbollah on Israeli defense facilities and counterattacks with rockets from Israel. But Professor Bashir Saad of the University of Sterling says Hezbollah's aim is to aid Gaza without provoking an expansion of the war. They're not trying to beat the Israeli army, because that's impossible. They're probably trying to find some kind of position that they can have so that they can bargain or negotiate some kind of settlement once the war is over. Saad says Hezbollah is being realistic about avoiding a catastrophic wider war. It's cynical, but also it's humanitarian. It's avoiding the huge catastrophe. If they target just the north, then maybe that will lead to some kind of better change than just going all out on trying to support in Gaza. Also, they just don't want to regionalize. They don't want the Americans to start shooting at the Iranians and all that. Professor Bashir Saad of the University of Sterling. 
In recent days, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has expressed concern to his Israeli counterpart that a wider war could result from continuing Israeli aggression towards its neighbors. And in national news, the Supreme Court has adopted a formal ethics code for the first time in its history. All nine justices endorsed the code released Monday. The ethics code had been opposed by conservative justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, but the ethics code was eventually approved unanimously by the court. Thomas has been accused of repeatedly vacationing at the expense of wealthy real estate magnate and Republican donor Harlan Crow, and failing to report the trips. And Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives Mike Johnson rolled out the GOP plan to head off a government shutdown Friday at midnight. His proposal would split the funding resolution for funding the federal government into a dozen different bills and step-laddered series of deadlines. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has asked Congress for $100 billion in aid for the continuing wars in Israel and Ukraine. Paul DiRienzo, New York. And now, our extended interview with Dr. Bashir Saad from the University of Sterling. All scenarios are possible. We're really at the critical point right now because, you know, we're one month and more ahead in the, in the war and things seems to be just stagnating or at least not really moving anywhere. So usually this means that either we've reached the limit or something is just going to escalate. So it's not clear how it's going to go. We don't know what's going on in the corridors of military thinking, but my impression from at least what the Secretary General of, the, of Hezbollah said, it doesn't sound likely that there will be an escalation. I don't think any of the parties involved are interested in that for various reasons. It feels more likely that there won't be an escalation. So everything is possible. This would be the simple answer. Yeah, what's causing that? The suffering of the Gazans continues. Isn't there, you get the impression that they would come in to support people in Gaza in their fight. Hezbollah is involved in the war. There is a war at the northern frontier. Hezbollah has already lost, 60 fighters have already lost their lives. So this is a sizable loss. They've been fighting heavily with Israelis on the northern frontier. Now, they've been destroying a lot of the military infrastructure, radars and towers and all sorts of things in military barracks in the northern frontier. Therefore, in a sense, being part of trying to weaken Israeli positions and maybe also probably sending a signal to the Israelis that don't try to escalate here because it'll be just another draining war, something like that. The idea of Hezbollah intervening in Hezbollah is more tricky because there's some kind of a balance of power between Israel and Hezbollah where there's some kind of rules, unsaid rules of the game. So if they go all the way to Gaza, it may just result in punitive airstrikes of all of the country. There won't be any benefit for that in terms of military outcomes. The party wouldn't gain from this. It wouldn't actually make things better for even Gazans, nor for Lebanese. They would just bomb the country. That's what's also happening in Gaza. So in, in Hezza, even though the Israelis are not really scoring any military victories against Hamas, they've actually caused the biggest humanitarian disaster. This is something that Hezbollah sees and wants to avoid, probably, in Lebanon. Israel's rhetoric out of Israel is uh, it's become evidence that could be used in future prosecutions for war crimes because they've been making such dramatic statements of we're going to wipe you out, drive you out, and all these kind of things. It's evidence. Israel has done this for decades now, and nobody has had the political will to prosecute Israel. But now it's true that we've reached a point where public opinion and just a general global audience is really 
in shock of how Israel is deliberately just what's going to happen afterwards. As long as the U.S. is behind Israel, supporting Israel, and I mean, you know how it works. I don't think anything will happen. Maybe Netanyahu would go out of power and he'll have to resign. Somebody else will take over. But that there would be a fundamental change in the way uh, politics gets done there is less possible unless there's a political will. But just to come back to the, the, the Hezbollah question, by the way, yeah, it's important to understand what Hamas and Hezbollah are trying to achieve from this. They're not trying to beat the Israeli army because that's impossible. They're probably trying to find some kind of position that they can have so that they can bargain or negotiate some kind of settlement once the war is over. So that's asymmetric warfare. It's, they can't really beat the enemy. So Hezbollah intervening in Hezza would involve a, a strategy that wouldn't really lead to a better bargaining position after the war. It's cynical, but also it's humanitarian in the sense that it's avoiding the huge catastrophe. If they target just the north, then maybe that would lead to some kind of better change than just going all out on, on trying to support in Hezza. They don't want the Americans to start shooting at the Iranians. Could there be something that happens that's unexpected that could escalate the whole thing? Yeah. So for now, it sounds like the status is the U.S. doesn't want to escalate and regionalize. So that's very important. It sounds like this is something that could happen, which has not happened, and which doesn't seem is, is going to happen. The other thing that could happen is that either Hamas or Hezbollah has some kind of hidden something up their sleeve that they haven't shown yet. Okay, this is also possible, but it doesn't look like it's happening. The other thing that could happen is that public pressure actually ends up really forcing some kind of ceasefire, some kind of resignation of the the current Israeli government. These are the main things that can happen. And also, the last thing that could happen is that Israel really decides to mount a punitive assault on Lebanon. In all these scenarios, you feel would logic and sense would prevail and none of these things would happen. But in times of war, there's much less sense and logic going on. Dr. Basir Saad of the University of Sterling. I'm Paul Durienzo. Leaders of Hamas say they are close to a deal to release 70 hostages in return for a five-day ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza. Working through mediators from Qatar, a Hamas spokesperson blamed Israel for procrastinating and evading its part of the deal. Hamas says besides a temporary ceasefire, it wants 275 prisoners held by Israel released. President Joe Biden. I've been talking with the people involved every single day. I believe it's going to happen, but I don't want to get into detail. What's your message for the families? Hang in there, we're coming. Hamas holds about 240 hostages. Other Palestinian fighters hold an unknown number of hostages. In more news from Gaza, Palestinian authorities have been calling for a ceasefire to evacuate three dozen babies and other patients trapped inside Gaza's biggest hospital. The Israeli military has encircled Al-Shifra hospital with fierce street fighting. Israel says Hamas is using the hospital as cover. Hospital staff deny the charge. They say supplies are dwindling. Electricity has been shut off to incubators with hundreds of people trapped inside. Witnesses say there's no place to bury the dead and 120 bodies lie in a mass grave dug inside the hospital. In breaking news, Israel says it's carrying out an operation against Hamas at Al-Shifa Hospital. An Israeli military spokesperson says soldiers are engaged in what they call a precise operation against Hamas in a limited section of the hospital.
And a complaint filed in federal court Monday against President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin accuses them of failure to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide. A staff attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights is Astha Sharma Pokharel. We are suing President Biden, Secretary of Defense Austin, and Secretary of State Blinken, uh, who we argue are liable for failing in their obligation to prevent genocide and for being complicit in the genocide of the Palestinian people in Gaza. This is a liability that arises under customary international law, which is, which is part of federal law. So customary international law prohibits, of course, the commission of genocide and other acts of genocide, but it also imposes duties on parties to prevent genocide when they have the influence or the power to do so. According to the complaint, the United States is Israel's closest ally and strongest supporter, as well as its biggest provider of military assistance. The government is denied there's a genocide in Gaza, despite more than 11,000 deaths, including thousands of children, claiming Hamas is hiding behind civilians. But Pokerel says that's no excuse. No, self-defense is not a legitimate defense under international law for genocide. So once the elements of genocide are there, you can't then say that this is self-defense. And then the final thing I'll say is that Israel is an occupying power. And this argument of self-defense under, under international law does not apply when what Israel is responding to is threats emanating from within the territory that they occupy. So in other words, Israel cannot occupy a territory and then claim self-defense from threats emanating from that territory. More than $250 billion has been provided to Israel by the United States since 1945. And in Washington, D.C., members of the House of Representatives met with rabbis for a ceasefire now to support one of their own, the only female Palestinian in Congress, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, who was censured for her outspoken support of Gazans, New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ceasefire means release the hostages. All the hostages. Ceasefire means stop the bombardment now. Ceasefire means defend the innocent. Ceasefire means transcend cycles of violence. To me, in that sense, ceasefire is not just real politic, it is spiritual. We are being called to be higher than our history. The House voted overwhelmingly Tuesday to prevent a government shutdown at the end of the week. Republican Speaker Mike Johnson, a conservative Trump supporter, was forced to reach across the aisle of Democrats to get the measure approved. The temporary funding bill passed 336 to 95, with 93 Republicans voting against it. Unlike the uprising by the hard right that scuttled Kevin McCarthy, this time some Republicans backed the compromise deal with the Democrats. Paul DiRienzo, New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo with these headlines. President Joe Biden met Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco today. It's the first meeting between the leaders of the world's largest economies in a year. Biden said China and the United States have to learn to manage their relationship responsibly to avoid a conflict. Xi called China's relationship with the United States most important in the world. The two are expected to discuss Taiwan, the South China Sea, the war in Gaza, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, North Korea, and human rights. 
Israeli troops claim they found a command center and weapons and combat gear belonging to Palestinian Hamas fighters in Gaza's biggest hospital on Wednesday. Israel claims Hamas has built a network of tunnels beneath El Shifa Hospital. The facility has 700 patients, including three dozen babies and 1,000 staffers. Hamas denied the accusation and on Wednesday dismissed the Israeli statements as lies and cheap propaganda. The United States denies it approved Israel's raid on the hospital. And an attempt by the Scottish National Party to pass a motion in the United Kingdom's parliament demanding a ceasefire in the Gaza war failed after impassioned speeches by both sides, as Parliament member Stephen Flynn sparred with Conservative Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Does the current Prime Minister not agree that if there is not an immediate ceasefire, then all of us in this chamber will be watching on as that opening of prison is turned into a graveyard? Mr Speaker, no one can deny the suffering that the people in Gaza are undergoing at the moment, which is why we're doing everything we can to get aid into the region, and we have repeatedly and consistently called for humanitarian pauses. The MPs also turned down a Liberal Party motion for extended humanitarian pauses. And two peace activists, Michael Berry of Nonviolence International and Starhawk, an author and eco-feminist, penned a letter this week to Stuart Eisenstadt, who's the chair of the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C. Starhawk spoke with WBAI. There is understanding that if we don't stand up for justice for all people, not just us, not just for our people, um, if we don't actually address the conditions in Gaza, and in Palestine and assure that the Palestinians can look forward to lives of dignity and hope, then we're not going to have safety for Israelis and we're not going to have peace there. And in local news, in the continuing drama over an FBI investigation into campaign law violations, Mayor Eric Adams was asked point blank by a reporter that if indicted, would he resign? If it actually turns out that the federal government does indict you, would you resign? I'm not going to say I'm not I'm speculating on that. That's that's you're you're all the way downfield. I'm going to continue to do the job as the mayor, uh, as long as my responsibility uh, to do the job. The mayor's general counsel, Lisa Zornberg, told reporters no one has been named in the investigation and there's no evidence the mayor is a target. The mayor admitted to meeting former FDNY Commissioner Daniel Nigro about a request for help getting a certificate of occupancy for the new Turkish consulate. But Adams added, that's part of the job. Yes, I did reach out to the commissioner as all of this is what elected officials, what we do. Um, when the constituency reaches out to us for assistance to another agency, we reach out to the agency. The mayor insisted he's done nothing wrong. We don't do quid pro quo. We follow the law. I'm very clear on that. I've stated it from my days in the police department. The controversy began when FBI agents searched the home of Adams' chief campaign fundraiser, Brianna Suggs. Later, the FBI searched at least two phones and an iPad belonging to the mayor. Adams was on a trip to Washington for a meeting on the burgeoning migrant crisis. He skipped it and returned to the city as Suggs' home was being searched. In recent weeks, the city has stopped guaranteeing shelter to migrants entering the city, sending unhoused families to a congregate shelter at Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. Some of the families took one look at the facilities and got back on the bus returning to the intake center. 
The director of the Coalition for the Homeless is David Giffen. Floyd Bennett Field is not at all appropriate for, for families with kids. Uh, look, I, I have uh, two kids that are 8 and 10 years old, and I would do the same thing as the families that were bused out there. I would turn around and get back in the bus and, and go back and find any other place to sleep uh, rather than stay out there. It's, it's simply not safe and not appropriate uh, for families with kids. Um, so the city and the state just have to do better and they have to find uh, places that, that are safe and appropriate. Families with kids need to be provided with um, uh, temporary housing facilities that have doors that locks and, and doors that lock and, and ceilings. Um, uh, you know, I was out there about a week and a half ago and uh, I was just appalled that they thought that this was a good idea, that this was an acceptable idea. Um, not only are families placed in these cubicles that have no ceilings where anybody could climb over and get into uh, where the, the family would be staying, but, you know, they, the kids would have to walk outside in the open air to get to um, the uh, showers um, that are in these open tents. And, and even when uh, we were out there and it was maybe in the 50s outside, it felt freezing. It felt like you were in a wind tunnel. Um, it, it I, I just can't imagine being out there with a young child and, and having to try to protect that kid from the elements and from, uh, you know, being in a huge facility that, that is supposed to shelter up to 500 people and feel it all like my child is protected and safe. How many are there right now, do you know? It's, from what I understand, only about 20 families are there now. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, 100 people, 150 people maybe, or something like that? Um, yeah, you know, the families range in size, I think, from you know three to six, maybe. But uh, right. I, the families that are out there now, I don't know how big they are. Is there a reason? Are people just not going out there or refusing to go there? Is, is it a, a problem getting yeah, people that, to go? Yeah, that's what I understand. The, you know, the families that were initially bussed out there, most of them said no, they didn't want to go there and were sent back to the Welcome Center. But even then, many of those families were told that the city just had no other place for them to stay. And... So some of those families then were sent back out to Floyd Bennett Field. It was only supposed to be families that had just arrived that were sent out there because one of the many problematic issues with Floyd Bennett Field is that it's really far away from everything. And um, the families that come out here, uh, their, their kids are placed in schools. Once a family is moved to Floyd Bennett Field, they're going to be far away from uh, whatever school the kid was placed in. So how are they going to get them to their original school if they wish to go from Floyd Bennett Field? Is, is the Department of Education on this? Well, what they claimed is that only, only families that just arrived were going to be placed out there, and then they would uh, bus them to some school that was not as far away from Floyd Bennett Field. But initially, they did, in fact, move families that had already been placed in shelters elsewhere they've had to try to correct that problem. A number of migrant children has already been enrolled in school and Giffen says there was a big screw up by the city. Only families that just arrived were gonna be placed out there and then they would uh, bus them to some school that was not as far away from Floyd Bennett Field. But initially they did in fact move families that had already been placed in shelters elsewhere. They've had to try to correct that problem. The Department of Education has promised to get the students to their schools from Floyd Bennett Field. Paul DiRienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with activist and eco-feminist Starhawk. Michael and I were asked to do a ritual 
around the inclusion of gay and queer and gender fluid folks. We did that. That's, I guess, how we got connected around this letter. He approached me and said, you want to write something because we would like the Holocaust Museum to make clear that the lesson of the Holocaust should be let's not let this ever happen again to anyone or any group of people. Mm -hmm. I'm Jewish in background, and that's something I feel closely identified with. I also have been involved in activism in Palestine, supporting the nonviolent resistance there. I was in Gaza 20 years ago now, um, supporting some of the teams from the International Solidarity Movement. When Rachel Corey was killed, she was a young activist who was uh, standing in front of a bulldozer trying to prevent the demolition of a Palestinian home, and the bulldozer operator ran over her. Uh, later, I was back there to support the team, same team, a lot of them that were with Tom Herndl, who was another young activist who was shot by an Israeli sniper. I've been there. I've met people there. I've stayed in people's homes and sat with their kids while tanks were firing. Is traditional religion, the great religions, are they failing to uh, follow the uh, the precepts of their faiths where it began? I think the precept of all the great religions basically is around compassion, around love, around valuing human life, and certainly in Judaism it's around justice. And I think it's vitally important for Judaism and for the safety of Israelis uh, because the Hamas attack was horrific and there's no excusing it, but there is understanding that if we don't stand up for justice for all people, not just us, <laughs> not just for our people, um, if we don't actually address the conditions in Gaza and in Palestine and assure that the Palestinians can look forward to lives of dignity and hope, then we're not going to have safety for Israelis and we're not going to have peace there. And the bombs and the violence and the continuing of murder is not going to solve the issue. It's only going to inflict harm on people who really had no choice in what Hamas decided to do and going to result in more and more violence down the way. I'm Paul Durienzo with these headlines. Yesterday's historic meeting between President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping led to some small but important agreements between the powers. Both are military rivals yet tied by economics. The agreement will curb the production of the powerful narcotic drug fentanyl, responsible for thousands of drug overdoses in the United States, resuming military communications and beginning a dialogue on artificial intelligence. The talks were held on the sidelines of the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco, where President Biden spoke. The United States does not seek conflict. And yesterday we announced resumption of military-to-military -military communication channels to reduce the risk of accidental miscalculation. And it exists. We are de-risking and diversifying our economic relationship with the PRC, not decoupling, not decoupling. 
Palestinian medics at El Shifa Hospital say they are increasingly afraid for the lives of hundreds of patients and medical staff. Israel and the United States have claimed the hospital with 700 patients, 1,000 doctors, and thousands of homeless refugees is part of a Hamas underground headquarters. Hamas has denied the charges. Sabrina Singh. We know they were using Al-Shifa Hospital. We know that they use other hospitals in the region when it comes to conducting their terrorist organizations and attacks. And so the Israelis are there. They are doing an assessment of the hospital. They are on the ground. And so, you know, we'll continue to receive that um, intelligence back as we get it. Releasing any evidence to that intelligence? Um, I'm not going to get ahead of anything right now. I don't have anything to, to preview. But if we do, you'll you will be the first to know. Israel says it found a tunnel entrance, a laptop, and a few machine guns in the hospital, claiming that's evidence they were right. Hospital staff had repeatedly asserted there are no Hamas fighters there. And in a sign of potential escalation, a U.S. Navy warship shot down a drone that was heading toward the ship in the southern Red Sea. The Thomas Hudner, a naval destroyer, shot down the drone, which the government claims originated in Yemen. While the Pentagon says they were not the target of the drones, they just wanted to be on the safe side intended target was not the Hudner, but that the drone got so close to the crew that the commander did feel it necessary to engage and shoot down the drone. The incident occurred early Wednesday, less than a week after Yemen shot down a U.S. drone over the Red Sea. Officials say the MQ-9 Reaper was in international airspace. Yemen said it was in their airspace and was shot down by air defenses. Last night, the United Nations Security Council adopted a resolution by a vote of 12 in favor to none against with three abstentions, calling for an urgent and extended humanitarian pause and corridors through the Gaza Strip to provide essential goods and services. The United States said the resolution didn't condemn Hamas, and Russia called it the lowest common denominator. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said the war should not be an excuse for ethnic cleansing. Uh, the creation of Palestinian state is unavoidable. We all must take deep breath and uh, think how we restore Gaza, how we make sure that no one is expelled from Gaza. Israel says it has no intention of stopping its offensive against Hamas. In national news, the man who attacked former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer in San Francisco was convicted today of federal assault and kidnapping charges. Jurors deliberated for about eight hours before finding David DePape guilty. He faces up to 50 years in prison. The attack on the 82-year-old Pelosi was captured on a police body camera. DePape testified in his own behalf, claiming his addiction to social media convinced him Pelosi's wife was responsible for government corruption. In local news, Mayor Eric Adams was at a town hall for seniors in Manhattan today. He was asked why the city had so many empty apartments in a housing crisis. The mayor touted his own housing policies, praising a plan to demolish the Fulton Chelsea houses in Chelsea in lower Manhattan. Chelsea housing is doing this complete renovation where there no displacement. They're tearing down the old building, building a new building, moving people completely in the new building before they tear down another building. Federal government is not helping. We have to find creative ways, and I'm really excited about the Chelsea project. But NYCHA activist and former city council candidate Marnie Halasa says the mayor is not telling the truth. The tenants never get, never get back in. So the tenants never return public housing in Miami. Same thing, demolition, mixed use, luxury, and then the tenants never return. In Chicago, Cabrini Green, same thing, 80% of the tenants never returned. That's the reality of it. At a public meeting last night at a senior center in Chelsea, some housing activists say they were prevented from speaking by police.
Paul DiRienzo, New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Aid workers say catastrophic condition is unfolding at a hospital in Gaza, currently being raided by Israeli soldiers. The director of Al-Shifa Hospital says 7,000 people, patients, medics, and other civilians seeking shelter are trapped without water, electricity, and communications. Thomas White is a spokesperson for UNRWA, the UN relief organization in Gaza. The situation for many people has become more desperate because they're living outdoors now. The South is just overwhelmed with internally displaced people. We cannot provide enough shelter for them in our schools. And so people are now sleeping on the streets. Uh, they're building lean-tos against any, any, uh, anywhere they can find. Uh, so the situation is becoming more desperate. UNRWA's top leader, Philip Lazzarini, blames Israel. I do believe there is a deliberate attempt to strangle our operation and paralyze the UNRWA operation. More than 100 aid workers have been killed in Gaza since Israel attacked in retaliation for an attack by Hamas on October 7th. Lazzarini says untold numbers of Palestinians and aid workers are buried under the rubble of the city. Between 10 and 20,000 tons of explosives have been dropped, roughly equal to the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Lazzarini adds Israel, by cutting off fuel supplies to UNRWA, is forcing aid workers to make an impossible choice. It is outrageous that humanitarian agencies are reduced to begging for fuel and forced after that to decide who we will assist or not assist. Israel had entered the hospital claiming it was a headquarters for Hamas, but there's been little evidence of that claim. Instead, the UN chief says it's Israel that's using UN facilities for war. Over the last few days, I received report that uh, several of our UNRWA schools have been used for military purposes, including a recent discovery of weapons in schools and including the positioning of Israeli forces tanked in at least two UN schools. In Washington, leaders in the House of Representatives are threatening $9 billion in U.S. assistance for UNRWA, accusing the organization of helping Hamas. UNRWA denies the allegations and says Israel watches everything they do in Gaza. And in national news, a Southern California college professor was charged Thursday with involuntary manslaughter and battery in the death of a Jewish protester during demonstrations over the war on Gaza. Ventura County District Attorney Eric Nasarenko. First of which, involuntary manslaughter. Second count, battery causing serious bodily injury, also a felony. Involuntary manslaughter is the killing of another without malice. The case is based on video footage where there is no clear view of an altercation between the Jewish protester Paul Kessler and the professor Loe Abdel Fattah El Naji. And in local news, Mayor Eric Adams announced Thursday the first round of massive budget cuts he says made necessary by a flood of thousands of migrants in New York City. The 5% cuts, the first of 15% in cuts by April, take effect immediately and mean libraries are closing on Sundays, universal pre-K is out, and garbage will be piling up in the streets as collection is curtailed. A class of new NYPD recruits is being canceled. Today, a coalition of groups protested outside of City Hall. Zara Nasir is with People's Plan New York. She says the cops are getting off easy. The NYPD is once again coming out of this mostly unscathed. They are not getting the degree of cuts that are happening to agencies like the Department of Education. 
Nazir adds the migrants are being used as scapegoats. Blaming the entire budgetary crisis that he's created on asylum seekers and immigrants who are coming into the city. Immigration is a long part of New York City's history. It's nothing new. There is some things that the city could be doing to better manage and more humanely manage the influx of people coming to New York City. Nasir says the problem is the mayor's poor management of the city, and she claims he's beholden to business interests. The mayor has hinted he thinks a recent FBI investigation into his close ties with Turkey are a result of racism, but Nasir, a woman of color, disagrees. We have to judge people by their actions, though, and we have to judge people based on who is benefiting from their actions. And it's unfortunate because, yes, we have this mayor who is a person of color and also people of color stands to lose the most from Eric Adams' policy. The next round of cuts is scheduled for January. Paul DiRienzo, New York. And now our extended interview with Zara Nasir of People's Plan New York City on the mayor's 5% budget cut. Might be the first of a 15% draconian budget cut to New York City. The mayor says it's because of the migrant crisis. Activists like Zara from People's Plan New York City have some different views. On Thursday, November 16th, the mayor put out what the city puts out every year, which is the November financial plan. And the November financial plan indicates what the city budget looks like for the fiscal year that we're in right now and also the next couple of fiscal years. The mayor has said in the past that he was planning to cut city agencies by up to 15% between now and next April. And we're seeing the first 5% being rolled out now. Looking through the documents yesterday, I realizing just like how bad the cuts are to schools, to libraries. There's entire days of library programming that will not be available now, like hours are being cut. There's also going to be 10,000 pre-K and 3K seats, we think, being eliminated. And there's also mid-year cuts coming to schools, other social services and housing services being impacted. So in general, the budget cuts are quite bad. The mayor is the architect of, of these cuts. There's a lot of disagreement about how his use of across-the-board cuts is hurting New Yorkers, especially poor and working-class people who are super vulnerable already to any fluctuations in city services who are relying on childcare and schools and public transit to get to, to just live their day-to-day lives. This last round, which again, more is coming, right? Almost double this amount of cuts are coming through April of next year. People are really going to feel it and it's going to hurt New Yorkers directly. Isn't he defunding the police? Yeah, it's a good question. There there has been one police academy class canceled as a result of the PEGS, the program to eliminate the gap. Overall, what our allies at different coalitions who look at the police budget are saying is that the NYPD is once again coming out of this mostly unscathed. They are not getting the degree of cuts that are happening to agencies like the Department of Education, which has a billion-dollar hole in it due to the mayor's cuts and is not being addressed in any way, right? He's not trying to plug that hole in any way. The NYPD is not getting that drastic of a cut as you look at the rest of their agency budget. And they have thousands of vacancies that they could have used This is all because of the migrant crisis. We are not in agreement, and I think a lot of other folks in the city's watchdogs, agencies, fiscal policy institute, 
the Independent Budget Office and the Comptroller, Comptroller's Office have disagreed with the mayor's assessment that the financial impact of asylum seekers coming to the city and seeking support from the city to get up on their feet until they get work authorization is to the extent that the mayor is making it. He's really been blaming the entire budgetary crisis that he's created on asylum seekers and immigrants who are coming into the city. Immigration is a long part of New York City's history. It's nothing new. Obviously, there is some things that the city could be doing to better manage um, and more humanely manage the influx of people coming to New York City. And a lot of it is about like not using emergency contracting now that we know like we're three years into this and this is happening. We need to address it in a way that is like good management and well-planned and like appropriately handling and knowing the fact that this has been happening and probably will continue to happen. Immigration is not going to stop to New York City and we don't want it to, right? It's a big part of the way in which the city in the longer term achieves economic growth by like the population growth that we have of people coming here. Fiscal Policy Institute has said that the mayor's cuts are going to amount to probably what would amount to like $12 billion if he indeed is going to do the 5%, 5%, 5%, 15% total through April of next year. Managing or the way that the city has been managing the asylum seeker influx does not cost that much. If we assume that it's a straight line and they don't change their, the way that they're managing, maybe over lots and lots of years, like maybe it would cost the amount that he's stating, but it does not cost that now. It's not going to cost that much this year. And so there's a lot of other places uniformed over time. For example, the fact that the city is under hiring and not staffing up its um, Department of Finance, which collects revenue for the city. There's lots of other things. Is this a management? Is the mayor just like the worst manager since John Lindsay or nefarious scheme up his hands to privatize and sell off parts of the city? There are now a bunch of scandals. Allegedly, the mayor is being looked into for corruption. There's investigations happening. There are certainly some indicators that the mayor's donor base is also people who he's beholden to are people who are not poor and working class people who will be most impacted by the cuts. There are people who are wealthy. He has ties to the charter industry and other like privatization schemes as well. I don't think it's a crazy stretch to say that he is beholden to his donors, who are his donors, who are his friends. There are people who are not, frankly, looking out for working class and poor New Yorkers. And in terms of management, like we've seen this through the one day that the floodgate, you know, like the, the one day that the city experienced flooding and storms that he was not able to react quickly enough and like really support people through what was a horrible day and a half where people probably were hurt and lost their lives because the city did not respond in time. That's one day, right? And so like the $110 billion budget literally is determining everything that happens in the city every day. And so to trust someone who there's a leadership crisis, there is evidence of mismanagement, there is all these allegations of corruption and other scandals going on. I think it's safe to say that people are not very much trusting the leadership of the mayor right now, especially when fiscal issues that need to be addressed. It's not because he's a black mayor. I mean, he's saying that, and believe me, some people at BAI are saying that, oh, this would never have happened to uh, uh, all the crummy people that uh, de Blasio hung around with. Of course, we unfortunately live in a country where racism is, is still very real and it's still a big issue. We have to judge people by their actions, though, and we have to judge people based on who is benefiting from their actions. And it's unfortunate because, yes, we have this mayor who is a person of color and also people of color 
extent to lose the most from Eric Adams' policies. And there's been study after study. There's been many reports of like stop and frisk going up and like who is being targeted the most. It's like 90% black and brown people. Like these things matter, right? Who, who policy impacts also matters. Christina Greer, Professor Christina Greer said something on a politics podcast about could there be some sort of witch hunt situation? Maybe, but you've also given them something to hunt for, right? Like it's not like it's completely baseless. Of course, as a person of color, like many of our people who we organize are people of color. We absolutely acknowledge that like racism is defining lives every day and making it very hard for people to, to live and thrive. And the mayor's policies are hurting those same people. So we have to talk about that every time the administration tries to deflect from their own actions, is that their actions are, also, are actually hurting millions of black and brown New Yorkers. And that's a problem. With the scandals and investigation, that's misuse of public funds, that is distraction. Police used tear gas and flashbang grenades Monday to halt a march against building an Atlanta-area police and firefighter training center that opponents call Cop City. More than 400 people marched about two miles from a park to the site in suburban DeKalb County, chanting Stop Cop City and Viva Viva Torreguita, invoking the nickname of an activist who was fatally shot by state troopers while camping in the woods in protests earlier this year. A wedge of marchers, including some in masks, goggles, and chemical suits intended to protect against tear gas, pushed into a line of officers in riot gear on a road outside the training center site. Officers pushed back and deployed tear gas. One protester threw a canister back at police. And we revisit a story that we did on this program on the story behind Cop City. Fast-moving developments in the case of 42 people charged with domestic terrorism while protesting the construction of a police training facility in Atlanta, popularly known as Cop City. On Friday, June 23rd, DeKalb County District Attorney Shari Boston announced she was pulling her office out of the multi-jurisdictional prosecution brought in December and March. We had some, some differences, and when I say we, I mean myself and the Attorney General's office, about who should be charged and what they should be charged with. If we can, to how much you can provide. You know, the value set of our office is that I will only proceed on cases that I believe that I can make um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And we only charge those cases in the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office. And so um, in order for me to continue to live up to um, the values of our office and my prosecution approach, mm-hmm. um, I have to I have to stick with that value. Among those arrested and charged with domestic terrorism in March was Southern Poverty Law Center attorney Thomas Webb Jurgens, who was acting as a legal observer for the National Lawyers Guild. Later that month, the Georgia Attorney General exclusively brought new charges against three activists aligned with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. The three were charged with money laundering and charity fraud. One of the 42 arrested and charged under domestic terrorism was in New York City last Sunday. Her name is Priscilla Grimm and she's a Georgia resident. At the church of Stop Shopping on the Lower East Side, the choir, led by Reverend Billy Talon, sang Grimm's praises.
tears welled up in Grimm's eyes as the singers bid her welcome. Grimm spoke with the news outside the event. She says she spent 31 days in jail before she was bailed out, adding, because DeKalb County withdrew doesn't mean her troubles are over. She recused herself from the case, so now it's up to the Attorney General Chris Carr of Georgia to stop this insane process. And so you're one of those people? I am one of those people, yes. Could you just in two minutes explain it? Sure. So basically I was charged for with domestic terrorism for wearing black and being in a forest. The district attorney of DeKalb County, Georgia, has recused herself from the case. She is refusing to prosecute them. There's 40 of us who have this charge. So now it's up to the attorney general of Georgia, Chris Carr, if he wants to move forward on the charges or not. He says he does with the flimsiest of evidence. And as someone who survived 9-11 and watched a building crumble in front of me from my rooftop in Brooklyn, these charges are illegitimate. They're absurd. They're ridiculous. And it has to be stopped because if you can charge someone with domestic terrorism for wearing black, you can charge them for breathing incorrectly on a sidewalk. How do you know it was for wearing black? That's what it says on my warrant, for wearing black. On my warrant, it says because she was wearing black clothing, she was arrested. It's not really a reason, it's just like, it's a political charge. Yes, and they lied on the on the warrants. They said that the Defend the Atlanta Forest Movement was classified as a domestic terrorist organization by the Department of Homeland Security which was so ludicrous that the Department of Homeland Security came out and said, oh, no, no, that's too fascist for us. We did not do that. How did you get into this? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up between Atlanta and Nashville, Tennessee. Both my grandparents are from there. My grandfather, Graham, taught at Georgia Tech. I have paintings in my home that my grandmother, Graham, painted in DeKalb County, Georgia. I have a huge sense of connection to that area of the country. You're not an outside agitator like they were saying. They thought they said most of the people were from out of town. It's very interesting. You know, on planet Earth, there are no outside agitators. One of the most famous outside agitators now has a day dedicated to him by the federal government, Martin Luther King Jr. He was called an outside agitator. He was arrested in DeKalb County and served time while he was driving someone to an oncology appointment because she had cancer. And they arrested him. Nothing new here then. Nothing new. No, this is very old. It goes back. It's actually down the feeding chain a little bit because that's Martin Luther King you're talking about. Martin Luther King Jr. Like it's another protester, you know. Yes, yes. So they're trying to do this, but I don't think it's going to work because we're in a brand new time and age right now of information and transparency. It's not going to hold water because... You can't charge someone for domestic terrorism for wearing black when actual terrorists kill thousands of people at once by driving planes through buildings. What happens next? What happens next? I'm waiting to see what happens next. They have up to four years that they could charge me, and during that time, who knows what will happen to me. So far, I have my Airbnb account has been deactivated. 
My Chase account has been closed. I lost my job at Fordham University. I'm not sure what's happening next, but I'm just trying to stay strong and work hard, like I've always done. Are you like on probation, or they control your movements and what you can say and things like that? I'm not allowed to go to the forest, the Walani forest anymore. I'm not allowed to talk to with uh, the other people that I got arrested with. Yeah, that's it. I have to check in with somebody called a pretrial services. It feels like probation without actually being found guilty of anything. It's very strange. So I call him every week and talk to his voicemail and say nothing has changed. Except last week I had a great update with which the DA is not going to prosecute. How much is the bail? Uh, the bail was taken care of by the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. I Three of them got busted. On completely made up charges. One of the women that they arrested can't walk without a walker. And they wouldn't let her walker in didn't stop them from helping you no no and they're back in action now bail funds are and jail support it's one of the oldest tools of activism in this, the united states so we have to support people who are putting their lives on the line in any way shape or form you could even say that stealing bread from a grocery store during a time in which there's not a lot of jobs and people are being evicted every day Who's really the criminal there? I think the criminal is this country and that economy that's not caring for that person. That's it. Thank you, and everybody should support and stop Cop City. Priscilla Grimm is a Georgia resident. She spent 31 days in jail on alleged state domestic terrorism charges and still faces prosecution by the Georgia Attorney General. Prosecutors have also floated the possibility of charging demonstrators under state racketeering or RICO charges meant to go after organized crime figures. Attorney Stanley Cohen is part of a team of lawyers representing another protester charged with domestic terrorism. Ariel Ebaugh is 22 years old and a lifelong resident of Georgia. Cohen filed a writ of habeas corpus challenging her detention. Cohen says the state's domestic terrorism laws violate the United States Constitution by punishing freedom of speech. He adds the Georgia Attorney General may be planning to use a law passed to help former President Donald Trump by allowing the governor to remove county DAs he doesn't like. I have no specific knowledge of why the, the district attorney of DeKalb County withdrew, but, but it, I'd like to think that it's not mere in, uh, coincidence that she withdrew not long after we had filed an extensive brief in support of our request for habeas corpus because it highlighted the procedural and substantive issues that are attended. The NLG observer who was arrested and then held. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think it's... That may be used as an example. One of the prime reasons we filed the Habe in this particular case before the indictments was we wanted people in power to take a close look at the statute to see if it had constitutional problems, either in process or in substance, and it had both, and to consider, do we really want to pursue, do we really want to walk down this road with this statute as the prime moving statute, where it's going to, in all likelihood, be struck down eventually? Do we want to spend the time, the energy, the resources, where the Attorney General's office is pushing for prosecutions under the domestic terrorism statute. And I can't speak for the DA, but I think the facts of most of the people charged with it are clearly, even if the statute survived constitutionality or the constitutional challenge, for almost all of those arrested, there's no application of that statute whatsoever. So I suspect that the DA's office took a broad look with a broad brush. Most of the charges or many of the people charged had domestic terrorism counts. They took a look at the law, took a look at the process, took a look at the statute, 
and said to themselves, we really don't want to go down this path. And I suspect for political reasons, the Attorney General's office, which is really has been for a number of years, a megaphone for the governor and, and little else, said, no, we have to pursue this. The district attorney for DeKalb County basically said she was ready to, you know, whatever the Georgia version of ACD, everybody, because not that bad of things happen, really, to warrant even misdemeanor charges for the most part. Another government agency saying they want to throw people in jail for 20 years under domestic terrorism charges. Uh, Is this country so divided? It's a political division. And the other thing you have to understand is this is not as in federal prosecution, but there's been a foreign terrorist organization designation or an individual terrorist designation. This is not a situation where you're dealing with young women and men who joined an FTO and engaged in an activity which furthered its ends. These are young women and men, uh, mostly young women and men, who uh, engaged in speech, association, assembly, and yes, coercive at times, and yes, it wasn't peaceful at times. But to go from that road with their background and what their purpose was about, especially in the light of sweeping community opposition to the project, to calling this domestic terrorism, is a bizarre political gesture a little more. Now, the AG wants to do it because Governor Kemp is all in on this and because other reactionary and Republican state assemblies and legislatures and governors want to make political points out of resistance and opposition and speech and assembly. But, you know, local district attorneys, especially the district attorney of DeKalb County, who has a reputation for being extremely thorough and extremely learned and extremely experienced, took a look at this and said, on the law and on the facts, we disagree and we have the discretion to say, not here, not now. What will be interesting to see is whether under the new Georgia statute, where the legislature has empowered Kemp to appoint a committee of five representatives to pick and choose whether they wish to remove county prosecutors because they believe they're not obeying the law. And I think that was passed primarily to deal with the issue of the investigation in Fulton County of of Trump. Attorney Stanley Cohen is part of a team of lawyers representing Ariel Ebaugh, a 22-year-old protester who is facing a uh, long sentence in prison if convicted of domestic terrorism, Cohen filed a writ of habeas corpus challenging her detention as a violation of the First Amendment freedom of speech and assembly. And you're listening to the news on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Paul DiRienzo. To get this story and to get more from the news, you can go to our website, pauldirienzo.wordpress.com. That's pauldirienzo.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.